Before we start the show, I wanted to make sure to thank everyone for their support. We're really looking forward to continuing to produce this show for you. We've got a couple interviews lined up for the coming month, our second film review, and more content about the state and the horizons of change in the 21st century. Remember you can find us on Twitter at COINTELPROPOD and also support us on Patreon. The link is in the show notes as always. Today on the show, we're going to take a step toward trying to articulate the type of change we think is necessary. We won't be able to do it today, but the goal of this episode is to hang a star in the sky of what will be a growing constellation of ideas about radical change and how we achieve it. I'm going to start this off with a radical claim. Everyone in the United States who lives west of the Chesapeake River lives in a colony of the American Empire. If you live west of Richmond, George Washington is still mad he doesn't own your backyard. Yet, in our frothing nationalist exceptionalism, we call the colonization and annexation of the lower 48 a manifest destiny. Never mind that in any other country, a pseudo-religious crusade of a nation designed to reach the sea would be recognized by Americans for what it was, an empire, plain and simple. In the urbanized areas of the United States, and especially on the coasts, we can identify the features of the imperial core. The elite reproduce the ruling class in high-caliber institutions of secondary and higher education, What remains of industrialization is still concentrated here, where weak and ineffectual unions stand sentinel over employees that are the global market's equivalent of a vestigial tail. Yet, in the imperial cores that aren't on the East Coast, we see the contours of colonial society on display. We can identify the settler's town as we walk down Michigan Avenue in Chicago, with its clean sidewalks and gleaming buildings. The administrators of the colony dash between the buildings carrying out the professional work of the empire. While at the concession stands and watering holes, the native people work at the counters. In the evening, they leave the settler town and travel to Inglewood and Cicero, to the native's town, what Algerian anti-imperialist France Fanon called the crouching village of ill repute. In the post-industrial United States, as everywhere, the revolutionary proletarian class either never was or is long gone. But the objective and subjective conditions of capitalism on the periphery of empire abound every day, unavoided, unrecognized, and unacknowledged in the very fabric of modernity. Thomas Jefferson's dream of the citizen farmer lies dashed and shattered in every rural community in the U.S., which clings to life while fiscal and social conservatism condemn its impoverished population to ever greater misery. All that's left is the empire. On this week's episode, we make a case for a renter's movement. 
I'll be arguing that a sufficiently organized renters' movement would be capable of extracting a guaranteed standard of social and economic rights. We'll do so by comparing renters to the anti-colonial movements of the 20th century, especially as those movements were understood by Franz Fanon. As I've already laid out, we can and must interpret the United States as an empire, but not just overseas, but here in the lower 48 as well. I'll explain why the industrialized working class cannot be a vehicle for this sort of change, historically or in the present. Renters are the only class of people in any existing society whose relationship to property allows them to understand the actual conditions of capitalism. When renters understand themselves as a class, with the capacity to force a great change, then they'll have nothing to do but seize the historical moment. An observable failing of leftist social theory is that the revolution never happened where the writers and theorists of the 19th century said it would occur. It was Germany, actually, that was supposed to rise first to meet the historical demand for socialist revolution. Like so many other stages teleologies of the 19th century, Marxism posited that only the contradictions of industrial capitalism could bring about the dictatorship of the proletariat. As the German SPD was legally and opportunistically coaxed to vote for war credits in August of 1914, and then aligned itself after the war with the Freikorps to hunt down far-left and anti-war elements on the cusp of capturing the weakened states of Central Europe, a revolution was underway in Russia. Backwards Russia, with its peasantry and orthodoxy and autocracy. If this contradiction could be explained away with Leninist hand-wringing about weak links in the chain of empire, then the fact that the Third International would only continue to be spread exclusively in the non-industrialized world continued to be a challenge for the more staunch adherence to the teleology of historical materialism and class conflict. Of course, the leaders of the anti-imperial struggle were eager to adapt the theory of Marxist development to fit the surprising realities of the 20th century. As the peasants in their respective societies took on the challenges of breaking down the tandem evils of capitalism and imperialism, Mao, Franz Fanon, and Che Guevara all attempted to reconcile this glaring contradiction. In no small part because of the geopolitical necessity of appealing to Marxism as it was based in the Soviet Union. These leaders appealed for support from the Soviets and went to great lengths to explain why these nationalist uprisings of agricultural workers actually constituted a revolutionary movement in the Marxian sense. All reached similar conclusions. Che wrote about the objective and subjective conditions of revolution. In the industrialized core, the objective conditions of capitalist exploitation were increasingly remote from the population because the imperial state and capital understood that deteriorating conditions at home would create an unmanageable social situation. However, on the periphery, Che explained, the objective conditions were inescapable. 
No peasant could deny the intolerable conditions of exploitation on the capitalist periphery. Therefore, the only obstacle remaining to the revolution in, say, Cuba, was to alter the subjective conditions. As soon as the critical mass of the peasantry believed that they were capable of altering the terms of their existence, the revolution was already underway. But in the industrialized core of the empire, neither the objective nor the subjective conditions of revolution could ever be met. The lower and middle class in the United States, those industrialized workers in the imperial core, for instance, believed that their investment in the system of imperial capital was in their interests, regardless of what level of exploitation was subjectively present in their everyday lives. For a while, they were correct in their appraisal of where things were headed, but the demand for ever-increasing productivity means that even the settlers may enter the native caste. If you do not believe me, then go look. Look at any city in the U.S. and tell me you can't see the settlers' towns. What Fanon called a, a strongly built town, all made of stone and steel. It's a brightly lit town. The streets are covered with asphalt, and the garbage cans swallow all the leavings, unseen, unknown, and hardly thought about. The settlers' feet are never visible, except for perhaps in the sea, there you're never close enough to see them. His feet are protected by strong shoes, although the streets of his town are clean and even, with no holes or stones. The settler's town is a well-fed town, an easy-going town. Its belly is always full of good things. The settler's town is a town of white people, of foreigners. And if you do not believe me, then go look. Look at any city in the U.S. and tell me you can't see the native's town with its manicured racial partition, what Fanning called the Negro village, quote, the Medina, the reservation, a place of ill fame peopled by men of evil repute. They're born there. It matters little where or how. They die there. It matters not where nor how. It's a world without spaciousness. Men live there on top of each other, and their huts are built one on top of the other. The native town is a hungry town, starved of bread, of meat, of shoes, of coal, of light. The native town is a crouching village, a town on its knees, a town wallowing in the mire. The look of the native turns on the settler's town is a look of lust, of envy. It expresses his dreams of possession, all manner of possession, to sit at the settler's table, to sleep in the settler's bed with his wife if possible. The colonized man is an envious man, and this the settler knows very well. When their glances meet, he ascertains bitterly, always on the defensive, they want to take our place. It's true. For there is no native who does not dream at least once of setting himself up in the settler's place. Go look, out on the entire world, 
and see it divided between the settlers and the natives, between the property owners and those who rent their place in the mire from the settlers. Let's return to Fannin's description of the colony. There's no longer any hope for a critical mass of industrial labors to seize the productive capacity of society on behalf of the exploited class. All that remains now are the negated bodies of the native people yoked to the machines of the settlers. The revolutionary nature of those exploited by the settlers is without question. History's already furnished us with the examples of China, Cuba, Algeria, and all the others. Just as was the case in those struggles, the only question is when the revolutionary element will perceive itself and thereby create the subjective conditions of revolution. The pace of post-industrial exploitation is such that it cannot deviate from its path toward the colonization of all those who live outside the ruling class. In this context, we know from Fanon that there is only one way for the native population to reclaim its humanity, and that's through the complete negation of the colonizer, physically, psychologically, and spiritually. How, though, do we construct a less abstract, materialist understanding of this relationship between the colonizer and the colonized from within the United States? The answer is property relations. In Germany in 1914, the population was 67 million. Of those, roughly 3 million were unionized industrial laborers. And keep in mind that these were, up to that point, the ideal historical conditions for socialist revolution. 3 of 67 million unionized industrial laborers, not all socialists even. Nonetheless, even they and their three million were intoxicated by nationalist opportunism and silenced by the threat of wartime political repression. In the United States today, approximately 35 million people alone rent their homes from property owners. However, in this regard, the left in the U.S. has a big problem, which is that its ranks are composed of comfortable professionals, many of whom own at least one home. Furthermore, when the rubber of redistributive policy hits the road, the homeowners all vote with the capitalists, regardless of their leanings on the culture war. This month, political analysts fumbled around trying to explain the strangeness of the New York City mayoral race, which was dominated by feckless center and center-left candidates. In a piece published June 15th, journalist Alex Yablon drew together the research and analysis of the interests and voting patterns of homeowners in New York and elsewhere, noting that the only real interest a homeowner has is in the maintenance of the status quo. This is, of course, not to mention that the rent seekers who garnish wages of the underclass profit exponentially from the exact same continuity. It's therefore no coincidence that suburban homeowners are the 
focus of the Democratic Party under a Biden administration that told the donor class that, quote, nothing will fundamentally change. It's no coincidence that the only substantive reform offered by the Biden administration amounts to paying that same class of people to have more children. This is, of course, what we should expect from a party oriented around the suburbs and home ownership. Because property owners understand correctly that the political system exists to protect them and their interests, while decades of atrophied social services and the flight of industrial capital has led renters to understand correctly that the existing political system will never offer them any form of amelioration or reparation. The only hope for a different future is for an organized class of renters who can orchestrate national rent and labor strikes to ransom a new political and economic system from the property owners. A militantly organized core drawn from the population of 35 million renters in the U.S. could pull down the American state or at least throw it into enough chaos that other elements around the world could extract demands from capital without the threat of U.S. military intervention. There is no other coherent class interest or property relation around which to organize against the contradictions of post-industrial capitalism. The property owners and the homeowners have united to boil the oceans and immiserate humanity through the maintenance of the status quo. The only option is for those who they exploit to form a militant renter's union, to call for the abolition of rent-seeking and the dispossession of all those who own and profit from that structure. Well, let me take you back uh, about 20 years uh, ago. Uh, The date, I believe, was uh, in December 20th, 1983. Uh, You were meeting with uh, Saddam Hussein. I think we have some video of that. of, of that meeting. Tell me what was going on during this, uh, this Where meeting. Where did you get this video? From so, the Iraqi television? This is from Iraqi television. When did they give it to you? Recently you know, or back had, then? We've dug this out of the CNN library. I see. Isn't so, that interesting? There I am. 